Hi, welcome to Cochrane Alliance Church and our online sermons. We are so glad you are able to join us. We pray that this sermon will be a blessing and an encouragement to you this week. Good morning. Let's pray before we come into the message this morning. Heavenly Father, again we say what a privilege it is to be here today. What a privilege it is to worship together as brothers and sisters in a spiritual family, united by your Holy Spirit. And so we ask today, Lord Jesus, that your Holy Spirit would be moving amongst us, that we would receive today what it is you have planned for us to receive as a church body, as individuals. Uh, Let our spiritual eyes and ears be open to hear what it is you are saying to us today. We welcome your presence. We are grateful that when we gather together, we know that you are here. And so, Lord, I pray that any hindrance or obstacle uh, that would prevent us from hearing what you have planned for us today would be removed in this place so we can receive all that you have for us. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Probably a lot of you would be familiar with the name Corrie Ten Boom, uh, but if you don't know who Corrie is, Corrie was a Dutch woman whose family hid Jewish people from the Nazis when the Nazis came into Holland in World War II. And eventually, the Nazis actually discovered the Ten Boom family and discovered that they were hiding Jewish families and sent Corrie and her sister Betsy to the Ravensbrück concentration camp where Betsy would eventually die. Now, even as they were transferred to Ravensbrück concentration camp and everything had sort of fallen apart in their lives, uh, Corey and Betsy never stopped trusting in the goodness of God. Uh, Betsy did actually find it particularly difficult because as they were being sent to the concentration camp, she was suffering from a vitamin deficiency and she needed these vitamin supplements every day. And... Um, and that was kind of a major concern. Like, they're obviously not going to provide that for you in the concentration camp. And so Corey and Betsy uh, prayed that God would make a way for them to bring two things into the prison camp. The Bible that they still had on them when they were on the train to the concentration camp and Betsy's vitamin drops. They said, these are the two things that we want to be able to bring in to the concentration camp. And if you know anything about how they worked at a concentration camp, I mean, you don't just walk in the gate. They search you. They shower you down, then they give you your prison clothes and they send you to your barracks. So the idea that they're going to be able to smuggle in a Bible and vitamin drops at the same time seems highly unlikely, like very improbable. And it was Corey's turn to pass by the guard, so they're all in a big lineup and they're getting into the the prison camp and the guard, uh, instead of searching her like he searched every other woman, just shoved her and said, you're holding up the queue, move along and shoved her through, and they actually made it through all of the steps with the Bible and the vitamin drops along with them. Now, that's a pretty cool miracle, but you can say, okay, kind of just a lucky coincidence that she was the one woman out of all of the thousands of women that just got shoved through, but there's another miracle here. When they arrived into the barracks, uh, they discovered that in the camp, there was 25 other women who needed the same kind of vitamin drops uh, that Betsy was using, and Corey prayed and asked the Lord, what should I do? Because if I give the drops to the women who need them, it's going to run out today. And even if I save these drops only for Betsy and don't give it to the other women, I'm still going to run out in a month. What are we going to do? But Corey felt like, well, what's the right thing to do? She lined up the women who needed the vitamin drops and gave each woman a drop. And then the next day she did it. And the next day she did it. And the next day she did it. And it just wouldn't run out. At one point, Corey was looking at the bottle, trying to see how much could possibly be in there. Like, this is like the never-ending bottle of vitamin drops. Um, 
but couldn't see through the glass. It was that dark brown glass, I'm assuming. Uh, she couldn't see it. And so Betsy just said to Corey, just accept this as a surprise from the Heavenly Father who loves you. And every day they just kept on using these same drops over and over. And then one day a young Dutch woman who was also in prison with them uh, came to Corey and said, look what I found for you. She had been able to steal some vitamins uh, from the staff supply room. And there was these big containers of vitamins. But Corey, you know, being very practical, was like, well, we'll finish the drops off first. And when the drops run out, then we'll use the vitamins. But that day there were no drops. And the drops had run out. And that's a story from Corey's, Corey's recollections of, of her time in Ravensbrück concentration camp. And it just comes to mind that God can provide all that we need. And I would suggest that miracles like the one Corey and her sister witnessed are somewhat rare for us because we simply don't often need miraculous provision in that sense, like in that way. But miracles like this are not impossible and they still happen occasionally today. You'll still hear stories uh, where the, you know, something needs to be provided and it is provided and it just doesn't run out until the appointed time. And so we're continuing our series in the parables and miracles of Jesus and we're coming to one of my favorite miracles of Jesus where Jesus feeds a crowd of 5,000 people with, five, with only five loaves of bread and two fish. Now there's only two miracles that all the gospels recount. All four Gospels recount only two of the same miracles, and this is one of them. The feeding of the 5,000 is so significant. The feeding of the 5,000 is just so important that every single Gospel writer said, this needs to be told. So it's one of my favorites. And what I want us to, the nice thing is when you have all four Gospel writers telling us the same story, you can kind of fill in the details a little bit more, right? Because they all kind of remember different parts of the story, and then you can kind of create a whole. So... I want to pull together some of the background to this miracle because Matthew, Mark, and Luke give us this really great picture of what's going on. And John's gospel gets the heart of the, the miracle but doesn't give us some of the background. So the whole setup to this miracle is that Jesus is trying to get away from the crowds. He's trying to get away from the crowds into the wilderness. Jesus has taken his disciples off into the wilderness, away from the crowds, away from the towns and villages. And why was he doing this? Well, for Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, we have two reasons, and, and they're both valid, like they're both the right reason, they're, they're both uh, accurate reasons, they're just different reasons, but they're both true. But in Matthew's gospel and Mark's gospel, there's two reasons. According to Matthew's gospel, Jesus takes his disciples off into the wilderness because they're grief-stricken. They've just received news that Herod has beheaded John the Baptist, and, and they're, they're feeling the weight of that. And there is some relation between Jesus and John the Baptist. We don't know if Mary and Elizabeth were first cousins or second cousins, but there's some relation there, right? They might even be cousins. And so there's this grief uh, that, that's upon them. And they go off into the wilderness just to have a place to process that grief. And Mark gives us a second reason for Jesus and his disciples going into the wilderness. And it's mostly that ministry has been crazy busy. And they are absolutely exhausted. It says in Mark's gospel that so many people were coming and going that the disciples themselves did not even have time to eat. And so Jesus says, come away with me to get some rest. Let's go off into the wilderness to just rest and, and recover from, from the work of the ministry that we've been doing. And so that's why Jesus and his disciples are trying to get away from the crowds. They go off into the wilderness. It's grief and exhaustion that bring Jesus and his disciples into the wilderness. But they arrive into the location that they're going, and guess who else is in the wilderness? 5,000 men who tracked him down there. And that number doesn't include the women and children who are there too. And so 
they are there at this point because Jesus has become so popular that people are just tracking Jesus down. Where is he heading? Oh, he got in that boat. He's got to be going over to that shore over there. Let's get over there too. And let's, let's meet him when he gets over to that shore. And so this is what we read in, in John's gospel. We're picking up in John chapter 6. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover feast was near. So according to Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus responds to this massive crowd of people that's coming to him. He's exhausted. His disciples are exhausted. They're grieving. And he sees this massive crowd, and it says Jesus had compassion on them. He had compassion upon them. Now imagine this, like imagine yourself, you're trying to get away. It's been an insane season. Everyone is asking something of you and you're grieving this, this loss and, and you show up and there's this massive crowd. Some of whom, you know, there's 5,000 men. So these men, some of them probably brought their wives along. Some of them brought their children along. So you might be looking at closer to 10,000 people, which is like roughly a quarter of the population of Galilee at this time. And you have this gigantic wave of people coming towards you, and all you wanted was to get away, to rest and recover. And this massive crowd is coming. And all of them are coming because they need something from you, or they're expecting something from you. They're expecting a healing, a deliverance, a teaching. In other gospel accounts, Jesus does two things before he feeds the crowd. So according to the compassion he feels when he sees these people coming, the first thing he does is he heals those who are sick. He's exhausted. He's tired, he wanted to get away, but he has compassion upon the people. He comes and he heals those who are sick. And the second thing he does is he teaches them. They are to him sheep without a shepherd. They're lost, they're scared, they're vulnerable. And while one of the gospels says that Jesus taught them many things, another gospel specifies that Jesus taught the people about the kingdom of God, which is what we looked at last week. He taught them about the kingdom of God. And I just want to kind of elaborate here using... um, Mark Buchanan's words. He said, do you know what good news the kingdom of God is to the people? That there's a kingdom of God and you don't have to be rich and you don't have to be talented and you don't even have to be good to be a part of it. You just have to want to be there. And that's the good news message that the people are longing to hear, that there is a good king and a good kingdom and we can be a part of it. And so Jesus knows, as Mark continues, he said, Jesus knows that these people are oppressed by kingdoms. They're oppressed by the Roman emperor and they're oppressed by King Herod. There's these tyrannical kings and emperors who do whatever they want whenever they want while they take your money and they take your land. And these people have been oppressed by kings, but they learn from Jesus that there is a good king. And this good king is on the move and they can come into his kingdom. And in this kingdom, the sick are made well. The ones who mourn are comforted. The meek actually inherit the earth, not the rich and the powerful. And that is very good news for spiritually hungry people. But it's starting to get late, and Jesus has been teaching on all these things. It's starting to get late. And in John's gospel, Jesus initiates a conversation about food. He asks Philip, where should we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, this was, Jesus kind of already knew what he was going to do. So it says, John says that this was only a test. He asked this only to test Philip, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for everyone to have a bite. I think Philip and I would have gotten along. My friends used to call me the voice of reason, because every time they had like a big dream or a big project or a big plan, I'd be the one being like, well, it won't work because of this and because of this. And have you really thought this one through? And I don't think that's a good idea because of this. I'm like that kind of Debbie Downer. Like I'm coming in like, ah, oh, that's not going to work. Can't do that. That's not going to happen. You're never going to get that done. 
I just, to me, it's just common sense. They're like, you're so pessimistic. I'm like, I'm not pessimistic. I'm realistic. So, and that's what pessimists always say. But, you know, I think me and Philip would have gotten along. Like, Philip's doing the math. He needs evidence. He's the common sense one. He's figuring out the math. And he's going, there is no way that we will ever be able to feed this crowd. And as much as that trait to be logical and use common sense can have some positive things in it, it can also be limiting when it comes to God's kingdom and God's kingdom economy because God delights in proving that nothing is impossible with him. And it leads me to this question, how often does fear disguise itself as common sense? How often do even churches look at their church budget and calculate that what God wants them to do is simply too expensive or too risky. God's plans are almost always risky, at least according to us. And I actually really appreciate, we did have one board member this year who was like, do we have enough faith in our budget? Right? Meaning, do we, are we just relying on what we know we're going to have? Or is God calling us to do something, uh, to take a step of faith and say, we don't have it, but we believe God wants it. And if God wants it done, it'll get done. And this year, we actually kept a very stable church budget because we had some issues last year, right? We had just, and you guys met the need and the challenge, and it was amazing, but we just didn't want to go that road again. But I appreciate having people on a church board who can say, is there faith in this budget? That's a really important question. And we should probably get used to God calling us to do things that we're not resourced for and not equipped for. I always think like, I just go through the Old Testament stories. I'm like, imagine being Gideon and being told, okay, there's this army. You're going to have to defeat them. And Gideon goes, okay, Lord, I got this. 30,000 men are in my army. We're ready for battle. We got 30,000 men. And God's like, actually, you just need 300. Right? I'd be as Gideon, I'd be like, oh, I don't know about this one. Right? Like, that sounds crazy. God says, okay. 300, that's great, don't worry, watch this. So what we see kind of consistently in scripture is that following God's plans will often involve faith and what seems to us to be fairly risky faith. And then when it all comes together, God receives the glory, our faith is increased and we marvel at the awesomeness of our God. So another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, speaks up. And he says, here's a boy He's got five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go among so many? I love Andrew. He's still got some common sense, but he's at least trying to provide a solution to the problem. But he acknowledges that the solution is lacking. There's simply no way that this little basket of food is going to feed this massive crowd. But I love the faith of the little boy. I'm assuming this boy is old enough to look at this massive crowd of people, and even as he like offers it, he knows this isn't going to feed all these people. And yet he's still willing to offer it. And this is what Mark Batterson writes about this. He says, he didn't let what he didn't have keep him from giving what he did have to Jesus. And that is the precursor to many miracles. And the principle here is to hold all that we have loosely. Because we can be really quick to have a mentality of, it won't be enough. I don't have enough. So I won't give it. I'll just hold on to it. Right? When you have a scarcity mentality, that's what you do. You say, I don't know if I have enough. I don't think it'll be enough, so I won't even give any of it. I'll just hold on to it for myself. But in God's economy, he can take what little we have and make it more than we ever imagined it could be. So when you're called to give, whether it's money or time or gifting, give. Even when it seems your little giving won't make a difference, 
God can use it for great things. For all of you who are like me and kind of like Philip, who take that logical, common sense approach, just know that that's not unique to us or to Philip. Like, there's a lot of people in Scripture who are like, God, the math doesn't add up. Moses was like that too, even though he saw some pretty incredible miracles. This is one of my favorite stories from, from the time in Exodus when they're journeying in the wilderness. So God's been pouring down manna from heaven every day. That's incredible. But the people are like, ah, manna's okay, but uh, could we have some meat? Okay, that's fair, I guess. I mean, you know, it's sort of, sort of rude. Like when you're, it's like when you make food for your kids and you're like, like, I don't want this, I want corn dogs. And you're like, I made you like honey garlic chicken thighs. This is far superior. So, and this is, this is so funny to me. So God is like, okay, okay, you want meat? I'm going to give you so much meat, it's going to be coming out your nostrils. Like, I'm going to overload you with meat. And Moses says to the Lord, okay, funny, that's funny, God, but I have 600,000 men alone, just 600,000 men alone, and even if we slaughtered all the herds we brought with us, with us, we still wouldn't have enough meat. So Moses has seen miracles, but this thing that God is proposing seems way too big. How are you going to give that much meat, Lord? There is no possible way that this can happen. Even though Moses has seen the miracles of God, he's doing the math and the math just doesn't add up. And the principle being that God will sometimes ask us to do things that seem impossible. The math just won't work. To borrow from Mark Batterson again, he says, In my experience, the will of God rarely adds up. By definition, a God-ordained call will always be beyond your resources and beyond your ability. But God can do more in one day than you can in a lifetime. And he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. When you add God to the equation, his output always exceeds your input. And your two fish can go a lot further if you put them into his hands. And I've got some cool stories about this, but I'm holding on to them for a sermon series we're doing on prayer in the new year. So I'm not going to tell you my stories, but I want to talk about Mark Batterson's story. Because I think he is allowed to speak with some authority on this. Because he kind of walks what he preaches. So when Mark first started his church in Washington, D.C., the monthly income for that church was $2,000. That's their monthly income for the entire church. I mean, that's not much more than one person making minimum wage. That's a small budget. They were barely making ends meet. Like each month was kind of a mystery. Will we have enough or will we be in the red? And then Mark sensed God calling the church to give to missions, which made no sense. In fact, that seems like bad stewardship. How can you give what you do not have? because they legitimately did not have $50 to give. But Mark knew if they held on to those five loaves and two fishes, all they'd ever have would be five loaves and two fish. But if they dared to give it into God's hands, he might do something miraculous with it. So they cut a $50 check to missions, which does not sound like much, but I know what it's like to be on that tight of a church budget where you go $50 is a make or break thing. This is a big deal for us to cut a check for $50. And Mark says, if we focus on the things near and dear to the heart of our Heavenly Father, he will look after the bottom line. And the month after they gave their first check to missions, the church income tripled from $2,000 to $6,000. And they never expected that. They just trusted. We'll at least be given what we need. And then they were given more than they needed so they could do more. Mark says he has only one answer to the multiplication of their income. Jesus said, give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
Now I want to pause here because I know that there's prosperity gospel preachers who use passages like this to justify extorting money from their followers. So let me be really clear that I'm not saying that if we give, then we'll somehow become rich. That's not how God's economy works. The principle of giving in God's kingdom economy is that those who give are given more so they can give more. That's stewardship in God's kingdom economy. The more you give, the more you receive, the more you give again. There's no storing up of earthly treasures and riches, but a generosity to the work of God's eternal kingdom. That doesn't mean you can't have a retirement fund or you can't save up money for your kids to go to college, but it does mean, again, you can go back to listen to sermons I've talked about this, about ordering your priorities properly. So we look at this this little boy. This boy gives all that he has to Jesus. And Jesus takes what this boy has, and he says this. Jesus said, have the people sit down. There's plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they had all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces from the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people that saw the signs Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. And then they want to make him king by force. I love that that last verse out. Because they're like, who wouldn't want to be under the rulership of a king who can just provide food? Like, we'll never be lacking for anything. We will be the richest kingdom on the face of the planet. We don't even have to grow our own food. He'll just make it happen. But just imagine that scene. This gigantic crowd sits down. And watches Jesus with this little basket of food give thanks for it. How ridiculous would that have looked? How ridiculous would that have have seemed? Jesus is thanking his father for something he doesn't have. He's thanking his father for something that hasn't happened yet. And then they start handing out that food. The people start coming to eat. And that basket never gets empty. Everyone has all that they need. And that basket, that one little basket, feeds close to five to 10,000 people. That's an astonishing miracle. But what is really interesting to me is how it's not limited to Jesus. Like sometimes like, oh, yeah, yeah, Jesus is the son of God. So like, you know, he does these miracles. But we saw with Corey and Betsy Tenboom, these miracles of provision can still happen today. There's another story that was told by a a really modern story, a guy named Joel Clark, who served on staff at a large church in South Africa. And he said during his time of serving on that church staff, his relationship with God, he would term it, it became a really professional relationship, but not personal. And he didn't get paid a whole lot, and he was low on money, his morale was low, his heart was hardening to all the things of ministry and all the demands on his time. Kind of, you know, maybe like some of the disciples who were getting away with Jesus. I mean, they're busy, they're tired, they're exhausted. And it changed late one night, he said, when he was making a quick McDonald's run. He had just enough money in his pocket to get himself a Happy Meal. I don't know why an adult male gets himself a Happy Meal, but maybe he needed that little boost, little toy, I don't know, little apple juice. Uh, But he's going in to get himself a Happy Meal, and Joel said that he was so focused on his own issues and his own mind that he barely noticed these kids hanging out in the parking lot, but the Holy Spirit, for the first time in a long time, kind of gave that prompt, that still small voice of the Holy Spirit said, buy those kids some hamburgers. Now, Joel didn't have enough money to buy those kids' hamburgers and get himself a Happy Meal, so he grudgingly bought five junior cheeseburgers, admitting that when he did it, he did it with a lot of bitterness and a lot of pettiness and a lot of cynicism. Why am I doing this? It doesn't matter, and now I don't get to eat. 
And even though he didn't do it with the right attitude, he said God showed up. And, he said, and in his words, God then showed off. So when he came out of McDonald's, the group of kids had doubled. So Joel thought, well, I guess we can cut all the hamburgers in half so everyone can have some. But he was like, well, why bother? God said five. That's what they get. They can figure it out themselves. He started handing out the hamburgers. But as he started handing them out, he's like, they multiplied. I got to five, then I had six, then I had seven, then I had eight, then I had nine, then I had ten. And at the bottom of the bag, there was one junior cheeseburger left over for himself. And to this day, Joel says, I don't know if I put in the order wrong. He says, that seems unlikely. I didn't have enough money for that. I didn't pay for that. He doesn't know if McDonald's maybe threw in some extra hamburgers because it was closing time or if God multiplied the food. But I do think the principle here is this, that when you start giving to God, to his purposes, to that still small voice of the Holy Spirit, he starts multiplying it. And when God starts multiplying, it's not about you getting more wealth. It's about getting more to give more. And I think John Wesley is a great example of this. John Wesley was a famous preacher a few hundred years ago now. And, uh, and John Wesley lived by this statement, make all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And during his lifetime, Wesley gave away about 30,000 British pounds. Adjusted for inflation, he gave away about $1.8 million. And John Wesley figured out in 1731 that all his family really needed to live on, to live fairly comfortably, was 28 pounds a year. Talk about inflation, right? Uh, 28 pounds a year, would, would do, his family would live a modest life at 28 pounds a year. And so no matter how much money he made, he determined I would give all of it away except for the 28 pounds a year that my family needs. And every year, Wesley made more money because he became more popular. He had books that were selling. He was getting speaking fees to travel. And so even when his income was rising to the thousands of pounds per year, he simply paid his family's bills and then gave the rest away. He never lived extravagantly. And so it's not about how much you give. It's actually about how much you keep. I think that's an important principle because sometimes you'll meet people who make a very significant income and, you know, you might go, wow, they gave $10,000. Like, yeah, they made like 1.2 million. So it's not about how much you give. It's about how much you keep and why are you keeping what you're keeping. And so at the, end of the, at the end of your life, you don't want to have accumulated treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. You want to have stored your treasure in heaven where giving, and giving it to God is that investment. And notice, I never say giving it to the church is an investment. Maybe God's calling you to give to the church. I don't know. But God might be calling you to give to your neighbor. He might be calling you to give to another organization. I don't dictate who God is calling you to give to, but I do say the principle of scripture is that we are to be a generous people. And to use our resources, whether that's money, time, or talent, to serve the people in our communities. And so we've seen so far that God can provide anything, anytime, anywhere, to anyone. Nothing is impossible for God. He created the universe out of nothing, so he can certainly make a meal for 5,000 people. But I do want to draw our attention to the human element in these miracles. And I've done this before in another sermon, but I think it bears repeating. God could have simply rained bread and fish down on the people. Right? Jesus could have gave thanks and then a mountain of food could have appeared. But that's not how it works. The disciples have to go and serve it or the people have to come and receive it. And, and it's still just one little basket. It doesn't look like there's anything there. There's a little bit of a step of faith in how this whole thing works. And so generally speaking, God does not do the supernatural if we don't pull our weight by doing the natural. 
And I know I mentioned this in a sermon before, but in the sermon on water into wine, but it bears repeating. If you look at the incredible miracles throughout scripture, there is often, not always, but there is often a human component to the miracle. There is a, a little stepping out of faith that happens. Again, it doesn't have to be a massive step. Faith the size of a mustard seed. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief is all it takes. Just a little bit of a maybe. I think God could. I think God would. I think God will. One of my favorite stories is actually the prophet Elijah, who's told that it's going to rain. So God says to the prophet Elijah, it is going to rain. Okay, you'd say, okay, great, it's going to rain. You know what Elijah does? He goes up to this mountaintop and he prays for the rain that he knows is going to come. And he doesn't do a half-hearted prayer like, okay, Lord, I know it's coming, so thank you, Lord, for the rain, and go about his way. He prays persistently, sending his poor servant to run down and look to see if there's a storm cloud coming. He does this seven times until evidence of what God said is going to come, comes. So there's a principle there in persistence in prayer. That you just keep praying even when you know that God is going to do it. God's saying, join with me in this. Be a partner with me in this. And the other story I, I like is, uh, I told this in the other sermon, but Joshua leading his people around the walls of Jericho. I'm always astounded that God could have been like, guys, watch this. Boom, bring the walls down. There it is. He's like, no, no, you got to march around it. You got to do it for seven days. And on the seventh day, you're going to do it seven times. Then you're going to blow these trumpets and then the walls are going to come down. Why? I mean, God could have just crumbled those walls. But he's inviting the people to participate in what he is doing. The disciples, think about the disciples. They're sent out by Jesus to proclaim the news of God's kingdom. But Jesus says, when you go, heal the sick, cast out demons, proclaim the news of God's kingdom. So they get to participate in the miracles of the kingdom of God. And so I think it would be wrong to think, if God wants to do a miracle, he'll do it, you know, with or without me. Maybe God doesn't need you, but God has chosen to allow us to partner in a lot of his work. What an honor and a privilege for us. And I do believe we can sometimes miss out on seeing amazing and impossible things simply because we don't step out in faith. Now, God's will is going to be done. His kingdom is going to come. And if we're not willing to say yes to God, he'll find someone who will say yes, and it'll happen. But sometimes we don't have because we do not ask. James says in his letter, you do not have because you do not ask. And so I think sometimes we're afraid to give or we're afraid to step out in faith because we feel like we don't have much to give or we feel like we're inadequate to the task. You're always inadequate to the task. You're never going to be adequate. I always think of pastors. Like as soon as a pastor thinks they're adequate to the task, I'm like, oh, that's a red flag. You don't want that guy. You want the guy who knows. You want the, the person who knows. I don't have what it takes. And so God, if you don't come through, this whole thing is going to fall apart because I don't have what it takes. And so I think we got to get over that fear. Look at this boy who offers the tiniest little basket of food to feed a multitude. He offers his inadequate amount, and God makes full use of it. So we can say this, Christ meets the needs of others through his inadequate people who yield their inadequate resources to him. It's just a matter of giving. I'll give what I have. I know it's not enough, but I trust that you'll take what my not enough and make it more than enough. And so in this miracle, Jesus then has all that he needs, a one boy willing to step forward and make a sacrifice of what he has for the sake of what Jesus is up to. All Jesus needs is one person to say yes and make a sacrifice towards it. And it's amazing what will happen if one person with faith will take what they have and give it. As we kind of come to the end here, I want to quote from Mark Buchanan in a sermon he wrote a few years ago called Hungry World. And I'm going to quote a fairly large chunk. So uh, this is Mark Buchanan. 
He said, you see, the kingdom of God only needs two things. It needs someone to say, yes, I will sacrifice what I have. And it needs people willing to then say, okay, I'm in on this and to start serving. That's it. The kingdom can go forward when people begin to say yes to God, not making excuses, not reducing the kingdom of God to our strategies, our capacity, or our resources, but just saying yes to God as impractical as it may seem. And when we say yes to God, no matter what, we find three things happen. One, everybody gets what they want. That's what the text in our our passage today says. Everybody ate as much as they wanted. They weren't like, oh, I can only nibble a little tiny bite. Everyone ate until they were full. Two, nothing gets wasted. That's part of the story too. Jesus collected all to collect the leftovers. There's so much that there's leftovers. Make sure none of it gets wasted. And three, there's more than we need. There was so much, there was leftovers. There's more than enough. That's the type of mentality we need to have about God's kingdom. But Mark says the opposite is also true. You can live into the scarcity mentality with resistance to the mission of God because you can't make the math work. It seems too big, too impossible. And if you live with the scarcity mentality, we're only ever going to do what we have the resources to do. He says you'll be chronically dissatisfied. You will never have what you want. You will waste a lot and you'll never have enough to go around. And he says, I know this because as a pastor, I've had a front row seat on this for 21 years. And so there's two ways that we can view the world. One is with a grand view of God's economy. Everything is his. If he wants you to do something, he'll give you the means to do it. Often, though, you're going to have to take that step of faith. I'm not adequate. I don't have what it takes. And God says, but go. He does that with Moses, right? Moses is like, I can't even speak good. And God's like, just go. Go and do it. He makes a concession. Okay, Aaron can help you out. But you don't need, I mean, basically the takeaway is you don't need Aaron, Moses. I'm going to go with you and you're going to get this done. That's the kingdom economy mindset. I don't have what it takes. I don't have the resources. I don't have the talent. I don't have the gifting. But God said, go, I'm going to go. He's going to provide what I need. So that's the one mindset you can have. The other mindset is that scarcity mindset. You're not sure you you have enough. So you hold back. You don't step out and you miss out on partnering with God in the work he's doing because you're just not sure you're enough or there's going to be enough. I'm going to call the worship team up as we close here. Just as we summarize this, the miracle of Jesus in this miracle of the feeding of 5,000 proves to us that nothing is impossible for God. He can provide all that we need and even more than we need. But we have to take that first step. We have to offer to God whatever we have. And we can't let fear hold us back. We can't let ourselves fall into that trap of thinking that God's economy works like our economy. And most of all, we have to trust. We have to trust that we have a good heavenly father who will take what we give and multiply it and use it for his grand purposes. And then think to ourselves, what a privilege it is to be partners in the work of the kingdom. And the catch to all this is that God multiplies what we give for the sake of his kingdom, not for our bank accounts. As Jesus says this, Don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly father knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else. Live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. And that's the reason I pray every week for this church, that we would know the plans that God has for us, that we would be diligent in seeking his kingdom first. Because I know that if we are doing what God has planned for us, if we are seeking first his kingdom, then he will provide all that we need, even if it seems impossible, even if the math doesn't add up. So my call for us as a church is to be brave, to be bold, to let's see God do the things that only God can do for his kingdom, for his glory, and for his purpose. And when you see things, when you see God do things that only God can do, it inspires your faith and you go, wow, God. 
I can't believe we get to be a part of this. And that's really the direction I think that God wants to move Cochrane Alliance Church is to be a place where we go, I don't know how, how that happened except for God. God did it. That's a great place to be. I never want to be in a church where I can say, well, we accomplished this because we had this donation come in and we were able to do this ministry because we had this capacity and we had these resources. That's all good and fine. And there's important things that come out of that. But really where I want us to be is in that place of, I don't know how that happened. I can't explain that except for a work of God. Let me pray for you and then we'll worship together. Lord Jesus, I know even in a really wealthy and, and rich culture like we have in Canada that we can still buy into the scarcity mindset, the feeling that we never have enough, it's never quite enough. And Lord, I pray that if that has a hold on us, that we would be willing to release that, that you would take what we have and, and you would do things with it that we never asked for or imagined, but we would just say, wow, God. So move us in that direction individually and then corporately as a church body. Let us be people who believe and trust in the kingdom economy. Let us believe that you provide all that we ask for and need and even more than we asked for. So help our hearts, Lord, to believe that nothing is impossible. When you are calling us, when you are directing us, when we are following, following your leading, let us be brave, let us be bold. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.